Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Denial of service attacks remain a threat to any organisation operating online. According to security researchers at NetScout, 2021 saw just short of 10 million such attacks. That total is actually slightly down on 2020's peak, but it's still 14% up on the levels we were seeing back in 2019. And the attacks themselves are becoming more complex. Some use as many as 26 different vectors. At the other end of the scale, an adversary can buy a terabit-class DDoS attack for just $6,500. And would-be cyber-attackers can even try out DDoS services online for free. So what challenges does this present to security teams? And how can organisations protect themselves? Joining us now is Richard Hummel, a CERT Threat Intelligence Lead at NetScout. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Big picture here, attacks are still happening. Uh, pandemic changed things in the DDoS world uh, for the worse. Uh, more people at home equals more DDoS attacks. Um, one of the things I've been saying is uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And it's so true when it comes to DDoS attacks. And inevitably, um, when you see a lot of people that are either gaming or they're not doing school or work, we see this increase in attacks over holiday periods. We see increases in attacks. And so that's basically what happens because a large majority of DDoS attacks are related to online gaming in one way or another. Now, that's not to say other organizations not, are not impacted. It's just that the vast majority of attacks we see are disgruntled gamers trying to knock their opponent offline, or maybe they're in a competition and you know what, I want to win. Maybe somebody not even part of the gaming sphere, but instead is in the gambling arena says, you know what, I've got money on this match and I need this person to win. So I'm going to launch attacks over here. And, and it's a high stakes thing. There's a lot of money to be had here. And so naturally, when the pandemic started in 2020, you had a lot of people that, guess what? School stopped. People started working from home. Naturally, you saw a lot more gaming happening and, and attacks increased exponentially. That trend continued all the way into 2021. In fact, it wasn't until the August, September timeframe that we actually started to see this kind of decline, which is why in the threat report, we talked about an overall decline in attacks on the year. It was that time when a large majority of the world was starting to go back to normal, going back to working on-prem, going back to in-person education. And then guess what? You see this massive drop-off in attacks. So just for comparison, first half of the year versus the second half, first half we saw about 5.4 million. Second half we saw 4.4 million. So nearly a million less attacks in six month time period. And when you actually look at the statistics here, the, the primary driver for that decrease is a drop off in DNS amplification and CLDAP amplification. Um, DNS was pretty much the predominant reigning key for DDoS attack factors from 2018 to 2021. If you go before that, it was always like TCP SYN floods, TCP ACK floods, but once kind of volumetric attacks stepped up, it, it became the number one preferred method. In fact, most booter stressor services list that as like one of the primary attack methods. Well, starting at in the first part of 2021, we started to see more TCP-based flood attacks. Um, a lot of these are kind of sourced from what we call direct path or non-spoof. So these are botnets or these are high-powered servers that adversaries control, and they're able to launch these really fast uh, throughput attacks. 
So we're seeing more of that. And so now if you look at the DDoS attack vectors, you see TCP SYN, TCP ACK, um, those are the number one and two for what adversaries prefer, and DNS has fallen to third. And that has fallen month over month for the past year. And so that's that's one of the key findings is that we are seeing this kind of uh, rebalancing of the scales and, and TCP is once again become the, the preferred method for adversaries. And on top of that, there's more botnets being uh, brought up to speed. In other words, what I'm talking about is there's a high power potency happening right now in the bot world. And for, I don't know, probably the past four years, IoT botnets reign supreme, right? 2016, the Mirai code gets publicly released. You have the Dynatax, and ever since then, IoT has been the rage, right? As many IoT devices as you can get, they're unsecured, they're numerous, they're all over the place, but they have a byproduct of not being connected to really high powered, high bandwidth, high throughput networks, or they themselves don't have enough processing power to generate a lot of packets. And so you have some sort of like uh, arbitrary limit here. So you can keep adding IoT bots and sure, if you get enough of those, you can do a really, really high powered attack. But what happens if you can compromise high powered routers or servers existing in data centers that already have massive amounts of throughput capability and RAM? And also they're connected to one gig, 10 gig network interfaces. Now you're talking about this exponential step up in the power of these botnets. And so that's what we're seeing. In fact, there's three different botnets that kind of surfaced over the last half of the year. And we're, we're calling this a rise of server class botnet armies. Um, so Maris is the first one. Maris is probably familiar to a lot of folks because um, uh, Krebs came out and said, hey, you know what, my website was taken off. It happens to be this Maris botnet that's using a, a kind of novel type of uh, attack mechanism called HTTP pipeline. Essentially what they're doing is sending a bunch of HTTP requests, but they're gating it and then they release a flood at once. And so it basically creates all of this domino effect where the server's trying to process things super, super fast because they just got inundated with a flood of these things. Um, and so Maris actually is compromised Microtik routers. And most of those routers have access to high bandwidth, high throughput. And so you can launch these really fast attacks, really large attacks from them. In fact, there was some reporting out there that suggests there was a 2.5 terabit per second attack leveraging one of these uh, botnets using these compromised routers. The second one that we saw was something we called Deginus. And this is also taking advantage of vulnerable Microtik routers to do similar types of attacks. Now we haven't seen HTTP pipelining with this one, but it's using the normal types of TCP-based direct path attacks. And then the last one that we saw in the second half of the year was something called Gitmarai. And Gitmarai basically is a um, Mirai variant that has been forked to include a vulnerability in GitLab servers. And so this exploit has been patched. Um, most of the, the servers have been having this stuff roll out to get fixed. But unfortunately, some of these uh, are slow to adopt the patches, or maybe they have a change process they have to go through that takes time. Well, the operators from Mirai don't have that problem of rolling things out quickly. And so just a couple of days after the disclosure of this, it's incorporated into Mirai strains. And now Mirai is auto-propagating with this vulnerability, compromising Git servers. And so now you can imagine if you're in a server in a data center, you have phenomenal power when it comes to a DDoS botnet. And so this is a phenomenon that we're seeing here. And so that direct path stuff, as well as the botnet uh, potency is, is two of our key findings for this report. 
So we're seeing evolution in this space then, aren't we? But if you break down the, the core statistics, you've got attack frequency, maximum throughput and maximum attack size. And we've seen in the UK, for example, the attack frequency drop off quite significantly, but then uh, throughput is up, attack size is down. Uh, what lessons can CISOs draw from these type of statistics? So and it's interesting that you bring that stat up because it's something that I like to bring up as well, because the high bandwidth stuff We've seen it. We've seen it for many, many years at this point. And we see reports come out from Microsoft and Google and they say, oh yeah, we saw a 2.5 terabit per second attack. We actually were able to saturate our network and spread it out. It didn't actually cause any damage or harm. Then you see this 3.4 terabit per second attack that comes out and says, oh yeah, by the way, it didn't actually cause any harm to the, the targets of these because we just uh, filtered out all the traffic or we spread it across multiple networks. So these really high bandwidth attacks I think adversaries are starting to realize like these don't have as much impact as they used to. And so we'll still see them from time to time because, hey, you know what? Adversaries like to brag. And so if I can get my name in media because, man, I launched this really powerful attack. Awesome. Cool. I'm going to do that. But more importantly here is the speed is sometimes a little bit harder to mitigate because not everybody has the same DDoS defense setups. For instance, some people rely on firewalls to be able to stop DDoS attacks. But what happens when you get a really, really fast attack using TCP? Well, your firewall is stateful. And so it has to reassemble those sessions to be able to inspect those and actually see what's happening there. Using enough of those requests to a stateful firewall, it's gonna fill up and it's gonna stop processing legitimate traffic. And then eventually it might tip over. And so adversaries are starting to realize these kinds of things. And now they're able to tweak their methodologies and the way that they go after things. And so one of the key things I think for CISOs is that you have to be aware of what adversaries are doing and how they're evolving, because absolutely they are evolving. And every single time we do one of these reports, something else has changed significantly. They have added methodologies, they've added new attack factors, they've changed less volumetric, now more of the TCP-based attacks, more fast attacks. In fact, when I was looking, we did a little bit of a case study in this report, and you'll see it. Um, is that in the, uh, what do we call it? I think it's the intersection of encryption state and DDoS defense. There's, there's a category in there where we talk about attacks against application layer or attacks against um, different layers of the OSI model. And when we started looking at attacks against TCP port 443, which is, let's face it, that's where most applications run these days, right? And so when I started looking at these things, attack counts, the frequency of those, roughly you know on par with what we've seen over the past couple of years but when i looked at the bandwidth and throughput for attacks against tcp 443 and, and applications running on that we saw a huge exponential increase and in the potency of those attacks targeted specifically app applications and so adversaries realized you know what a sledgehammer is not going to work anymore i have to be more surgical so i have to figure out where it's going to hurt and i'm going to do my reconnaissance i'm going to do my uh, scanning ahead of time to figure out what services they're running, what ports I need to go after. Maybe I can do some IP reverse lookups and I can say, you know what, this is their IP footprint, but guess what? They have this VPN hosted over here. They have their DNS server over here and here's their upstream. So I'm going to go and I'm going to start testing. I'm going to probe and I'm going to go in after their weakest link. And when I find something that works, I'm going to repeat that with other organizations. Uh, because these guys don't really care who they target or who they hurt. Most of the time, these guys are very indiscriminate in their targeting. They're going to go after where they think the money is or where they think the biggest impact is. So if they're doing an extortion demand, that they can get paid. 
Uh, and that's what we saw with the Lazarus Bear Armada guys. In fact, we, we talk about the triple, the triple threat. Uh, in other words, DDoS extortion, ransomware, and then holding data hostage. And more and more of these ransomware gangs are starting to adopt DDoS because they realize, you know what, we can do this. And ransomware guys are very, very good at what they do of getting in, identifying the weak link, identifying where they're going to have the most impact, and then getting a payday. I mean, we look at how much these guys get paid, and I, I think to myself, I'm in the wrong line of business. And these guys are just raking it in. And so more and more you have security researchers like me saying, don't pay, don't pay, or we're starting to put um, different requirements on organizations. If you pay, you're going to get hit with sanctions or you're going to have legal ramifications because now you're aiding and abetting a criminal. And so more people are not paying. And despite that, these guys are still making a lot of money. So how can an adversary then apply another lever? So it's not enough your, your data gets encrypted. It's not enough we stole your data and now we're holding it for hostage. Well, now we're going to DDoS you as well. So you can't even access your systems. So even if you tried to do a backup, well, now we're going to take off your, your systems offline. So you're going to have even a harder time doing that. So pay us the demand. And so more and more, we're starting to see this, this evolution of adversaries become more sophisticated and employ DDoS in different ways with different methodologies. And the key to all of this is making sure you understand how adversaries are doing this and what they're doing. Because most of these attacks in the DDoS world, they're not zero-day attacks. They're not novel. They're not new things that we've never seen before. And so by, by examining the threat landscape, understanding what's happening here, and taking steps to prepare, you're 80% of the way to defending against any kind of DDoS attack, regardless of the size of the throughput. Are they, are the adversaries having to tailor their attacks so that it's efficient from their end because these resources are not infinite and so is some of the variation in what we're seeing them adjusting the severity of attack against the level of protection of the likely target it's quite possible um, and it's in some more sophisticated adversaries actually will sit there during the ddos attacks and monitor the efficacy of that attack and they'll tweak accordingly a good example the first half of the year we saw a couple of financial organizations, specifically their payment card processing systems targeted. Um, and we were called in in kind of an emergency support mode. Um, I don't think either of them were customers, uh, but both of them had multiple layers of DDoS defense in place, one cloud-based, one on-prem-based. And what they were seeing is an adversary, maybe it's the same adversary because it was similar tactics, but it could be two different adversaries. They launched a volumetric attack against the first layer, which is like a cloud-based. It failed. So they switched to this TCP-based act floods. Well, that got through. Well, then they found, oh man, and now they have on-prem stuff. So I'm going to try the TCP act flood because it worked the first time, why not the second? And they found out, you know what, that doesn't work. Let me switch back to volumetric. Well, guess what? That did work. So now we bypass two layers of defense and successfully taking down a platform. And for these payment card processors, like a minute of downtime is tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of transactions. How much revenue loss is that? And in the exact opposite scenario for another one of these, they use the volumetric to get bypass cloud because the cloud was not provisioned to handle the, the, through, the bandwidth. And then they use the TCP act floods to overwhelm the on-prem. And so you can see that adversaries are specifically tailoring these. Now, the vast majority of attacks, again, like I said, these are from booter stressor services. These are disgruntled gamers. These are just average folks that probably don't have the know-how to do that. But when you're talking about specifically targeted attacks, in, in one part of our next threat report, we have um, this area where we talk about the ripple effect of DDoS and adversaries specifically going after certain organizations, but the resulting impact of that is that everybody around them suffers. 
And so while we do have some adversaries specifically going after certain organizations and being very surgical in their approach, so they're, again, like I said, they're not using all of their resources, they're using just enough to overwhelm the layer that they care about. And so, yeah, I think some adversaries are being conservative here and that they're only doing the necessary in order to overcome that layer. Now, sometimes you have some showboating, like I said, and that's how these, these DDoS for hire platforms get more customers is they try to do this re really big flashy attacks and then they boast about it on Twitter or underground forums or various like different chat channels that they're part of. And so we will see those, but I think for the more sophisticated actors, yeah, abs absolutely. They're, they're being conservative. And if they're using a botnet, they probably want to be careful about that because you're typically not spoofing those IPs. And so if an organization sees a botnet related attack, well, now they have the list of, of botted nodes in one, if it's a service provider, they can start to clean that up. And two, if it's an enterprise, they can put a, a block list there. So now they don't ever have to worry about that botnet again. Um, and so adversaries do have to be cautious or careful about how they're doing these attacks. So one aspect is that it's very easy to hire a botnet and you've you've uh, highlighted this in the report that effectively there are no barriers to entry and i think the figure you quote is six and a half thousand dollars to um, to get a, a terabit class attack which is a, a very small amount of money for somebody who has a grievance or indeed wants to use it as a toolkit for a more sophisticated attack you know attempt to exfiltrate intellectual property uh, for example is that a trend that you expect to continue yeah, in fact, um, it, it's kind of funny. This section of the report, when we talk about DDoS for hire services, it actually came as kind of a, a side thing. Uh, I got a request in actually from, from somebody in, in the media, and they said, you know, what is the average cost of a DDoS attack? And, and my gut reaction was, well, it's probably about 20 USD. That's, that's what it was, the last benchmark that I had checked, which, uh, I mean, unfortunately, was like many years ago. And most of the world is tracking that yeah, 10, $20. In fact, I had, I, I was on another interview and I asked uh, the reporter, I said, what do you think it costs as like a basic barrier to entry for these attacks? And, and he had mentioned two or 300 USD. The reality is, is that it's free. Almost every platform that I validated personally had some sort of free DDoS attack you could launch. Now, granted, it's not going to be a powerful attack, but Powerful attacks don't always constitute impact. Sometimes the right attack, a smaller attack at the right point in time is all you need to affect some impact, some latency. And for gamers, three seconds of latency is all they need to be able to end a match, right? So it doesn't even have to be these massive potent attacks. And so even the free services offered by some of these things is like, hey, get a taste for it. If you like it, come back. Um, they offer three to five different types of attacks you can do for free. And then from there, it starts to scale. So you can do $5 for a five-day trial, all the way up to, the, I think the highest one that I had seen as far as a, a static pricing was 6,500 USD. And, and again, you're right. That was uh, being able to launch hundred or one terabit per second attack. Um, you could do 100 concurrent attacks at the same time over a, a longer period of time. Um, there was another platform that offered a $2,500 service that says, hey, we'll let you do a guaranteed 1 million packets per second using 150,000 botnets that we are botted nodes that we have uh, for 2,500 USD. Now, a lot of these platforms also have custom configurations. So maybe I have multiple targets or maybe I want to launch X number of attacks at the same time and I want to do it for this long. You, they actually have slider bars. You can go in there and you can configure your slider bars and then it will tell you the price that it's going to cost you for that. 
Um, and then most of these platforms also have this idea of what they call power. So when we talk about bandwidth and throughput, that's you know size and volume, right? When an adversary talks about it, they call it power. And so they'll advertise, oh, we have X number of power today or we're running low on power. And that's because they have so many simultaneous DDoS attacks occurring that they don't have the, the server resources to launch any more attacks. Um, and so every now and then you'll see, hey, we just added a new server. We have X number more power. Um, get in quick before it goes away, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, they're, they're literally, you don't even need a crypto wallet anymore. You used to actually, actually have to have a wallet uh, but now anybody with a grudge and an IP address can go in there and launch an attack as they please. It sounds like a horribly twisted version of the web configuration services for cloud computing. Just use the sliders to increase the power and, and so forth. Uh, but if it's that easy, is there much that security teams can do to protect against these attacks? So the good, good news here is that every single attack that I have ever seen from computer stressor can be easily mitigated if you are prepared and have some sort of mitigation platform in place. And so that's the good news. Um, I've not seen any terabit level attacks from a booter stressor before. That's not to say they don't exist. And also caveat that we don't see every attack on the internet. I think we purport to see about one third of the world's internet traffic. And so there could be that other two thirds where maybe there is a terabit level attack sourced from a booter stressor. But for the most part, if I had to put an average around like the upper bands here, I would say 150 gigabits per second is probably that upper band average uh, for attacks sourced from these things. And so they might purport to launch terabit per second attacks, but so far since my tenure here at Netscout, we have not seen that. And I've been here for just over four years. Uh, one of my colleagues has been in the space for over a decade, almost two decade, decades, if not more. And he, same thing. Um, most we've seen is like in the hunt, like several hundred gigabits per second stores from these things. And so um, that's the good news, right? Is as long as you're tracking what adversaries are capable of here, as long as you understand that it's not if you get a DDoS attack, it's when, and you take step to put something in place, then most of this DDoS for higher platform stuff, the booter stressor services, um, they shouldn't keep you up at night. When we're talking though about these layers of attack where the DDoS attack is perhaps the first part. How do you then respond if you see the DDoS attack? Should you start looking beyond it and think, ah, okay, this is the the first wave of a more complex attack, perhaps something that's going to be more stealthy while we're distracted chasing down the DDoS, they're trying to get in and do something else in another part of the business we're not looking at. And you know, how do you manage that under the circumstance? Because a DDoS attack is quite a stressful environment to be in. On the receiving end of one, anyone who's been on the receiving end will agree that it's not somewhere they want to be. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. And we have seen some nation states employ DDoS as kind of a smoke screen. Smoke screen. And so it does happen. Uh, hey, pay attention to this really flashy thing over here. Why I come over here and stealthily try to get in. Um, now, I will say that the vast majority of the DDoS attacks, um, and, and I'm probably putting a, a shoe in my or a foot in my mouth here, but the vast majority 98, 99% of all DDoS attacks are just cyber criminals looking for a payday, or they are disgruntled hacktivists that have a point to prove. And so there's, there's not a whole lot of instances where I can go and say, hey, this nation state used DDoS here, or this nation state did it here. We have seen it. Um, for instance, North Korea has used it in some of their attacks against crypto exchanges. Um, we've seen China employ it as a tool against like um, hacktivists or protesters in Hong Kong. 
um, Telegram came on record in 2020 saying, hey, um, there was a, a DDoS attack against our Telegram platforming. And, and it turns out that uh, individuals in Hong Kong protesting were using it as a communications platform. And China didn't like that, so they launched a DDoS attack against it. They also have uh, uh, the great DDoS cannon, which is designed to go and take down websites of things they don't agree with. And so we have seen nation states employ these things, but the vast majority are, are cyber criminal related. Uh, and so I will say though, you know, if, if there is something happening geopolitically, if there's a conflict or let's just say your organization um, passes some new rules, right? Maybe you're in the financial industry and you have to apply to, or you have to adhere to some new regulations that came about. Well, you're going to have some probably disgruntled people, or maybe there's some, um, you know, nation states that don't agree with it, or maybe, you know, it, it has something to do with like transiting foreign boundaries. So maybe you might come under those kinds of attacks. Um, and in which case, examine your own circumstances to figure out, okay, do I have a reason other than just a random rote DDoS extortion or a random cyber criminal for coming after me? If the answer is yes, and they're getting DDoS attack consistently, and it seems like more outside the norm, then yeah, you should be paying attention to everything else that's happening. And then I'll also say, it depends on the kind of defense you have. If you have an on-prem solution or you have some of the cloud solutions out there, like some of the stuff we offer, then the whole point of having those solutions is, is peace of mind, is knowing that the DDoS perspective is covered for you so that your security team can then focus on other things. And so maybe you do get a ramp up in attacks and you're like, why is somebody coming at me that hard? Well, did I get a DDoS extortion? No. The answer is no. What other factors could play in here? And if you don't know, then absolutely your security team should be on heightened alert looking for other possible intrusions. Um, if you're relying on things like a state for firewall that can tip over and when it tips over, that means all of the bad traffic that you don't want in is getting in. That's the time when you absolutely should be looking for other types of activity. What can be done, though, at an industry level or potentially even a country level to deter the people who are running these services? So certainly in the UK, that would be a breach of the um, Computer Misuse Act to launch a DDoS attack. There have been some takedowns, but it seems to be quite hard for law enforcement to stay ahead of this. So is there anything that can be done? And in particular, is there anything that industries can do collaboratively to protect themselves by working together more closely? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's a lot of things that can be done. Um, a, a good example of this is still, I mean, we're seeing, I don't know, 60% of all DDoS attacks are still the volumetric type. In other words, an adversary is spoofing the victim. So you have an IP address behind your firewall, behind your servers, whatever they might be. An adversary comes from external and says, hey, this is actually me. I'm coming from outside your organization and I want you to send requests to me. Well, simply having anti-spoofing in place will completely eliminate that. It'll completely eliminate volumetric attacks because adversaries can no longer spoof external to your network. And so, yeah, there's a very simple solution to shut down a large portion of attacks. Now, when you do that, now you have to start talking about, okay, does our server have the resource load to do anti-spoofing? Do we need to employ new hardware? And there's other kind of thoughts that you have to do and there's other planning that you have to do and not everybody does that. So that's one way. Another way is to use uh, regional-based ACLs or access control lists, making sure that, you know what, we have no reason to have traffic coming to this device, for instance, from external here or external to this network. Or you know what, maybe we only ever want east-west traffic inside of our network touching this particular device or server. And so setting down very strict 
uh, control lists, figure out only traffic from here and this kind of traffic and anything that's not used, any port that's not used, any service protocol that's not used, shutting those down. And so I think there's some fairly easy steps that we can do as security practitioners and defenders to be able to stop some of these attacks. Now, is it going to stop all of them? Absolutely not. Um, and so the other part is, is getting involved, making sure that you are getting involved in some of these community outreach programs. Um, there's, there's Nanog, there's Mog, there's any number of these kind of global consortiums of uh, internet technology experts getting together, talking about, well, how do we do this at scale? How do we, for the whole world, stop DDoS attacks, or at least make it much harder to do? And so these things are constantly uh, going on two, three, four times a year, and there's lots of different uh, places to get involved. And so as if you're a large organization and you're looking to, you know, I want to give back and I want to help here, get involved, pitch in, because it's not, there's no one person that's going to institute this change. There's no one country that's going to institute this change. This has to be a global effort of people coming together saying, we have to stop this phenomenon. We can do it by doing these steps. And the steps that I've just talked about, the, the anti-spoofing and access control lists, uh, one of my colleagues here, Steinthor Bjarnarsson, he tells if you implement these things properly, now I say properly because some people forget to do one thing and it null and voids their whole setup, but if you implement these things properly, you solve like 95, 90 to 95% of the, the DDoS problem. And so absolutely it's possible to stop these things. It's just a matter of educating yourself to know how and then getting involved to help stop it on a global scale. Richard Hummel describing the trends in DDoS attacks and whether it's down to governments or businesses to counter them. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back in two weeks' time when we'll be looking at the psychology of cyber attacks and how to survive them with human sciences expert Rebecca McCowan. You can listen to that episode from April the 13th. Meanwhile, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and of course on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.